Hello, I am Anika Orock, author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and you are listening to the fabulous Baseball and Barbecue Podcast with Jeff and Len. they can't even fathom they turn up your driveway not knowing for sure why they're doing it they'll arrive at your door as innocent as children longing for the past of course we won't mind if you look around you'll say it's only twenty dollars per person they'll pass over the money without even thinking about it welcome to episode 101 of baseball barbecue i am len aberman and i am here with my incredible co-host for the first 100 episodes and hopefully for many hundred more jeff cohen hello there jeff len we started with some famous part of a famous speech from the movie field of dreams right yep so we have so much on this episode. This episode is packed. It's long, too. Yeah, it is long. What I love about podcasts is you have the ability to stop it, continue later. It's almost like TiVo for podcasts, right? right. <laughs> you don't have to listen to all of it at one time. Although, this is the perfect episode for that long car trip. Yes. If you, if you have a long road trip... <laughs> this is the one you might get you t if you're going to Iowa, even though the game already happened, it, depending on where you are, <laughs> hopefully you get to the end of this episode by the time you get to Iowa. <laughs> but so it's jam packed. Yes. It, yeah, it's jam packed. So. All right. So let, let's talk quickly about what we have on this episode, because it, there's so much we have we have a talk with three wonderful people brian lapinto dan malley and aaron nelson brian you might recognize the name he's been on this podcast before i believe episode 84 talking about hinchliffe stadium we'll mention that again in the interview they went to the field of dreams games episode 82 <laughs> jeff and i are doing now, we're going to draw back the curtain. Jeff and I do this by Zoom, and he's holding up two fingers. It's episode 82. <laughs> <laughs> All right, episode 82. They were at the game, and they really, they loved it, and they give us a great background. Yes. On the game, right? Yes. And then, Jeff, tell us uh, another guest that we have on this podcast. We have Andrea Williams, 
who wrote a book called Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues. And let me just read you what our good friend Bob Kendrick wrote as a blurb on the back of the book jacket. Andrea Williams brings the Queen of Negro Leagues back to life through the pages of this wonderfully written and introspective look at the most important woman in baseball history. And Len, she's the only woman who was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Deservedly so. The book is great. Really enjoyed the interview that we did. So that's going to be another treat. And then, of course, we have we have another guest. We have Joey Machado, part one, because, first of all, it was one of those situations where you don't want to cut him off. He had so much to say and so much great stuff. So Joey Machado of Blues Hog, Barbecue Sauce, and Sauce, Rubs, Charcoal, and they, they have everything. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, they have Gateway Drum Smokers, is he also represents. So I was going to say I wouldn't be surprised if Blues Hog had their own smoker, but they have Gateway Drum Smokers. We've got Joey Machado. But before we get to those, Jeff, yes. and uh, I want to just ask you about Field of Dreams. You know, there's a lot that's been said about Field of Dreams. They had the game this week. A lot of people talk about what the movie means to them. And one of the things that is the basis of this movie, the real, you know, the nitty gritty is people talk about the father and the son having a catch, right? When I was listening to these guys talk about catching with their father, it made me think about catches with my father. And I remember it's it's funny. You, I, I think that's one of the things, if you're a fan of baseball, you, you remember that I remember my my dad unfortunately has a he has a bad back we would have a catch in the backyard if i would throw the ball you know i would sometimes throw it poorly can you believe that that's why i don't (laughs) that's why i don't play for the mets or whoever sometimes he'd bend down and he'd pick it up but after a while you know if his back was bothering him he didn't want to disappoint me so he wanted to have the catch with me I would run. I'd pick the ball up. I'd hand it to my dad. I'd run back to my place. And it, it didn't matter. that I was having a catch with my father. And that is a beautiful thing. And in this interview, that's one of the things they talk about. So yep. do, you have, do you have memories of having a special catch? Sure. My dad, was. he worked six, seven days a week. He owned a retail business. But he would come home and we'd have a catch in our backyard. He'd play ball every Sunday morning. And it'd be, uh, you know, I joined the team when I got a little older and we played ball together. It was, you know, one of those special times where father-son plays ball. I mean, it doesn't get more Americana than that, right? Right. And that's one of the, the, I guess, the core things about the movie Field of Dreams. Jeff, I leave it to you. Please introduce our next guest. Take it away. Well, here are those three gentlemen who went to the Field of Dreams game, Brian Lopinto, Dan Malley, and Aaron Nelson. Enjoy. It has been more than 30 years ago since Ray Kinsella heard a voice in Iowa, and that voice said, if you build it, he will come. They made a movie, Field of Dreams, and now, 30 years later, Major League Baseball decided, hey, let's cash in on this movie, whether it was a promotion that whatever they did, they did it right. We have three guests with us tonight that had the 
advantage of being at that game, Jeff and I were extremely jealous, but we are so grateful that you guys have joined us. Tonight, we are joined with by Brian LaPinto, Dan Malley, Aaron Nelson. Unfortunately, Kevin Costner couldn't make it, but and James Earl Jones is also busy, but we are so glad that you guys joined us. So you guys all went to the game. And let's start with someone who's been on this podcast before. Hopefully our listeners will will recognize him. He's very involved with Hinchliffe Stadium, the rebuilding of Hinchliffe. Brian Lapinto. Brian, why don't you give us a little background of how did you you found out about the game? You you went. Just give us a little bit of the background. Sure. And first, you know, congratulations, guys, on, on your 100th episode recently. And uh, now I guess I'm part of now the next 100 episodes. So part of the first part of history, part of the next that's part right. of history. That's, yes. <laughs> and and to, to your point, that's really what, pretty much what it was all about. This Field of Dreams journey to go to this game. Uh, heard about it two years ago when they first announced it. And I've been kind of following it ever since. And of course, we've gone through the pandemic and and they revitalized it and, and, and tried to do it again this year, and they were able to, and uh, certainly uh, had every intention of going, and it was just a thrill to be there. Brian, it's rare that we have three such distinguished guests on with two you know, so-so hosts, and uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jeff, I should have said just one so-so. <laughs> but... Uh, in no special order, I'm just going to go in the order that I wrote your names down. So I've got Dan Malley. So Dan, you go to this game, you you decide you're going to go to this game, you're going to visit Iowa, you're going to go to this cornfield. First of all, how did you get tickets? So Brian and I sat in the mezzanine level of Yankee Stadium and made the purchase on StubHub. We went on a couple of different sites and saw where the best prices were. We had been looking at them for like the last two days and we were trying to game the market somewhat. And when we realized they were only climbing, we, uh, we pulled the trigger. How much did you pay, if you don't mind my asking? With fees included, 1300 Not okay. bad. Now, uh, and, and just to point out, originally tickets just were for Iowa residents. So they, were, and they went on, on the secondary market and sold, which is... Perfectly legal. Nothing wrong with that. And uh, you guys took advantage of it. That's great. Exactly. Considering that it was uh, it was under 8,000 fans that were allowed to attend, that is not bad. So now, Aaron, you did not know Brian and Dan before this game, right? I did not. Um, we met in a little restaurant eating lunch in Dyersville. I'm trying to remember, I think it was the day, for, the day of the game, correct? Brian? That's yeah. right, yep. Aaron, I detect a little bit of a Long Island accent in you. <laughs> Long Island? Long Island? I don't yeah, think I'm, so. I'm close by. <laughs> but, but I do have New York blood in him. My, my mom's from New York. Uh, my grandpa lived in New York most of his life. So that's how I became an Yankees fan. But I, I'm in Louisiana. <laughs> uh, well, and, you know, Ron Guidry from Louisiana. There's, there's that's, another right. Connection. that's right. So, and Aaron... Did you also, how long was it that you made the decision that you were going to go to this game? You know, I'll be honest with you. I I had just planned to watch it on TV and then FS1 was playing a, a little documentary that kind of combined the, the parts of the movie and just all the hype for it. And I watched it and went into kind of this blur of immediately going online. 
This is this is Sunday before the week and bought a ticket, lined up a flight, and basically winged the rest of it from there and just said, I this is a once in a lifetime event and I'm a Yankees fan my whole life. I what am I doing? I have to go. So at that point I just winged it. <laughs> wow. And and did you also what did you pay for your ticket? I think mine were about fifteen seventy five. The markup from StubHub, I mean they they it was pretty pretty good markup, but you know, it was one of those things that I'll never regret that's been a day of my life. So how, how did you get there? You obviously flew into Ohio, I guess, the Moines, and then you had to drive over to where Dyersville, you said it was. So tell us how, how that was like and, and the trip getting to the uh, field. Now, if you don't know, people listening, it's actually the, the Field of Dreams movie set. They actually built it about a couple hundred feet away from there because they couldn't they couldn't play in that one one field. So they actually built another field with, 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 with stands there. So tell us about your adventure getting there. I think Brian and I had an interesting story. Brian and I were set to fly into Chicago the day before, drive two hours or so to Davenport, Iowa, and go see the Quad City River Bandits on Wednesday, drive into Dyersville the day of the game, and then go back to Chicago after the game. Unfortunately, Brian's flight would end up getting canceled we had to make a make an audible. What ended up happening was I was in Chicago about 10 hours earlier than him instead of at the same time. I ended up at a minor league or an independent league, excuse me, professional partner league, American Association League game, the Chicago Dogs. And then 6.45, I picked him up at the airport and we made a mad dash to Wrigley and caught a night game at Wrigley and then spent the night in Chicago when we drove out to Dyersville first thing in the morning. Nice, nice. Yeah, it was definitely a wild situation. I, 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 I My intention was to take the earliest flight because you figure that's the best option. I get to Newark Airport for a 5.30 a.m. flight and found out it was canceled. And I, I, while, while I was not happy, I knew I had to make the next step because let's face it, I, I had to go to the distance, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> so um, ended up doing my own research, got to the counter, I said, I have a plan, I said to the woman behind the counter. I said, get me to Cincinnati, and then from Cincinnati to Chicago. So I ended up on a uh, 145 flight out of LaGuardia to Cincinnati and then to Chicago. And then, as Dan said, we went right to, uh, to Wrigley Field. It was a bit of a blowout. It was like 7 nothing already in the first inning, but we were able to go to Wrigley Field and then head over to Dyersville. That was, that was a fantastic little kind of uh, opportunity there that we weren't expecting. And that was actually my plan was to get in, go to go to Wrigley the Wednesday night, Dyersville Thursday, and then I, I was I caught the game Saturday um, at the White Sox Stadium. I think it's Guaranteed Rate Park. At the last minute, I I didn't have tickets to the to the White Sox to the Cubs game, so I ditched that and I drove into Dyersville, and they were showing Field of Dreams in the park. So I kind of just did the whole watch the movie on the big bigger screen the night before in the park, drink a few beers, and kind of get prepared for the game the next day. So that's awesome. Aaron, what was it like at the game? The, I mean, when you got there, what was security like? What were the fans like? What team were the people rooting for? Give us some of the background there. So I actually, after I'd met Brian and Dan, um, I probably waited, went to have a beer at the bar and I probably waited a little too late to leave. And actually, you know, the traffic getting there was, was a lot more than I thought. It probably took a solid hour and a half for me to get there. 
And then, you know, when, when you drive up, you can kind of see it, see it all in the distance, but they're parking in a field across the street. And what, once you step through the security gate and you're almost, you, you go through Guy Ferrari was giving out these, uh, <laughs> these hot dogs wrapped in um, apple pie and they were free. So I, I had to at least try it, but wasn't really a fan, but I, I had to try it. And then as you turn around, you see the, the field of dreams game. You see this, you see the field, I mean, the field of dreams house, you see the field, you see the bleachers, the little girl falls off on with the hot dog. And I mean, it's just kids are thrown with their, with their dad. There's people fully suited up. I mean, really from all different I saw a lot of different jerseys, but I was actually surprised at how well the Yankees fans traveled to this game. And of course, a lot of White Sox fans. It was wonderful. And I, and I actually went to the, the MLB network, had a booth kind of between the field and the, the house for Field of Dreams. I walked up to it, sat and listened around for a while, and I was going to leave. And as I was about to turn around and leave, they announced Kevin Costner's coming. So I just stayed. I, yeah, I just stayed there. Kevin Costner drives up in his little golf cart with all his entre- small little entourage of security, walks up, and I'm within five feet of him for the next 20 minutes while he does his interviews and chills out and walks out. It it was pretty amazing kickoff to my day and just pure luck that I went to the MLB uh, network booth and just stood outside of it. That was the feeling of that. And then when the game was about to start to actually walk through the cornfield and then you you come through the cornfield and it opens up to this amazing work of art that they did to make this happen. It's just, uh, I mean, it, it was chills all the way through for me. So you had to, you had to walk from the actual field where they shot the movie through a cornfield to get to the park that they built. That yep. must have been a heck of a feeling. It was. They, they had little uh, statuettes of the players, both White Sox and the uh, Yankees kind of in the corn. There was some strong lights. There was a maze for the kids that I couldn't see it where we were. But my mom said, when you look at the aerial view, it's actually a, like a major league ballpark logo is what she was telling me. So, yeah, it, 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 it was it was amazing. Wow. Dan, give us some of your feelings, what, what it felt like to be there. I think it was just the coolest environment ever. I think it, it was just like this amazing sight. You know, we drive up to try to get in. And, you know, you're in the middle of these cornfields and, you know, just endless country, right? And I've never been to like the Midwest before. So, you know, it's so strikingly different. And then just, then you just see this ballpark and it just towers over everything. And it's so, it's so out of place in the, you know, in that area. But, you know, you walk in, you park, you get close and, you know, you kind of take it all in and it's just, it's incredible. And, you know, just the way they set it up. So you walk in the gates you enter into the original field of dreams and then to get to the new stadium, you have to walk through the corn to get to that pathway. So, you know, you've got to walk through the corn just like the actors in the film did. And it just, it, they really spared, you know, they spared no detail in really making it feel authentic and connected to the movie and, you know, just kind of connected to like that pure sense of baseball itself. I thought they did, you know, such a good job. And, you know, even the field itself, you know, the outfield fences were essentially purely chain length. So you could see the corn and they had like nice wood accents to kind of blend it into the environment. It, it was just, it was such a special location, you know, and you can see the original field of dreams in the background. And yeah, I think there was just like an air of, you know, this was something special and unique. This wasn't anything that's ever really happened before. And, 
Well, now we know it's going to happen again, but Brian, Brian uh, sorry, no, go ahead, Jeff. Brian, give us a sense of what the ceremonies were like prior to the game. I know, I know there was Kevin Costner made a speech and the players coming out in their, I will say, semi-replica uniforms just because did they really have to have a Nike swoosh on it Nike for one center, game? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was really no have, Nike back then, Jeff. <laughs> did they really have to have the new era logo on the hats back? I mean, give me a, yeah. one game. They couldn't have done it, but give us a sense of, of the ceremonies before the game. Yeah, well, you know, they, it started with with what you probably saw on TV with the videos of of people going through the corners. They showed that on on the video board that they had. because We did have a video board to look at. And as you're watching that, you can see it clearly does cut to a live shot from the pre-recorded segments to what is clearly Kevin Costner in the corn there. And you see, and you get that sense, okay, I see, we see what they're doing here. They recorded the video. Now they're going live to Costner walking through the corn. And there was like this hush. And I don't know if, 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 if Dan and Aaron felt that, but it was just like everybody stood up and just watched you kind of waited like, to hear the voice from field of dreams at that point you know yeah i mean we, i think we didn't really know what was going to happen but then there was the music that was playing that was like very reminiscent of the movie and here he is kevin costner the star of the film walking in this very slow but yet methodic manner at the end of the day it was just like this perfect moment that you kind of watched him you kind of watched the video board and I could see why he was there for a week because he—you could see that he—he's—he's a—he's a tremendous actor. He did this perfectly and played that role as, you know, the de facto host of the game. And when he got to the scoreboard, he kind of looked at the scoreboard, and he turned around and looked at the cornfield, and then the players came in. That was just perfectly done. I, I definitely feel like I. I got some, you know, my hair was standing up on my arms for that I, one. But, uh, I just got it what you're telling the story again. And I was there. So it's, it was a beautiful moment. It was just, it was like a perfect thing where it, it just was so, it was perfect. It was quiet. And it really kind of slowed things down, which is, I think, what was the point of the game is to kind of take you back to not only the film, but, but maybe even to an earlier time. You know, Brian, it's, it's very interesting because what you are involved with, with uh, Hinchliffe Stadium, which is an actual real stadium, very old stadium that they're going to, that they're renovating now. And it's part of our history. And so that's definitely something that appeals to you. Oh, without a doubt. In fact, uh, recently, a friend of mine sent me a clip from MLB Network, which Harold Reynolds was talking about the Field of Dreams game and saying how he was hoping to maybe push Major League Baseball to do a game at Hinchwood Stadium in Patterson, New Jersey, which would be fantastic. And for those that are not aware, Hinchwood Stadium is one of the last remaining Negro League stadiums in the country. So that would be great if, if Harold Reynolds can, can be the voice of reason <laughs> and, and make something like that happen. But you know, time will tell. I think baseball has proven that they're going to try to put games anywhere they can, whether it's London or Dyersville uh, or the Little League World Series, which is coming up this Sunday. So. I think there's an opportunity there, and, and maybe that opportunity might come to Patterson. We'll see. So the uh, the game starts after the ceremonies, and Lance Lynn is the pitcher who fir- throws the first pitch. But I want to ask Aaron, because I see with, with the Yankee hat on, did you really want Andrew Haney to, to be the pitcher of this game, of this famous game, I mean, <laughs> to be the startup for the Yankees? 
honestly, no would be, would be the right answer. I, I just, I didn't feel it for him, but, but I was so caught up in the moment at that time. I think anybody could have threw the first pitch out and it really wouldn't have bothered me. But it, uh, <laughs> it just feels like a moment for, you know, a big time pitcher like Garrett Cole, which we know he was on the, uh, yes. the COVID that, IL at the time. That's uh, who I was going to say. I would have, if I had to have a choice would, would have been, or I mean, it would have been amazing if Severino would have been back, you know, from the injured reserve and could have thrown her somebody in a little while. You know, I wonder, obviously, Kevin Costner was there. I wonder if they asked anybody else to be back. I was talking to someone the other day, James Earl Jones, maybe. I think he's, if he's not 90, he's close to 90. Mm-hmm. So, because I, I feel, I know Kevin Costner's the star of the movie, but. When you think of a Field of Dreams, they they kind of go together, you know, James Earl Jones and Kevin Costner. But that movie had such a cast. I mean, I was uh, Ray Liotta, right, as Shoeless Joe. And I, I think that was pretty good, fellas, Ray Liotta, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, you're correct. Obviously, I read an article. So, as I'm sure some people may not may or may not know. Um, the game was originally scheduled for 2020 and was canceled due to the pandemic. I read an article that stated in the original iteration in 2020, the entire cast was going to be there. However, a lot of their commitments that were from the previous year got pushed to this year, plus other commitments they already had. And almost everyone except for Dwyer Brown, who played Ray Kinsella's father were able to weren't able to make it. So it was really, I think I only saw the two of them, but had that game happened in 2020, everyone would have been there, supposedly. That, that would have been epic. The one thing that was in the player who hit the winning home run on the White Sox. Tim Anderson. Yeah, yeah. Had never seen the movie. <laughs> I think that the teams, maybe in spring training, knowing that they were going, could have maybe spent an afternoon or something showing them the game uh, the movie but, you know, but the, len but then his home run really was like a, a hollywood ending i mean I, I know you guys are probably rooting for the yankees but that that the way he ended he couldn't have scripted that you know i actually after they pulled ahead by one run before that inning where that where chicago walked it off i actually sent a text to my mom and i said as much as i'm a yankees fan it would feel right for the white Sox to win for some reason and that happened, and she's like, you got your wish. And I don't know, like, I'm a huge Yankees fan, never been in a White Sox fan, but it just felt like the right ending to it all. I agree. Yeah. I, I agree wholeheartedly. That was a tremendous ending. And, and at least, you know, we didn't see a blowout, right? It, it looked like the game might have gotten a little bit away from the Yankees. They came back, and then we saw it end, thankfully, in the um, bottom of the ninth. Because I think I know I would not have liked to have seen an extra innings game with the guy on second base. <laughs> I don't think no, the dream no. was meant for yeah. <laughs> starting a guy on second. Uh, it was it was just magical. I mean, at first it was like this kind of shock, but then it was like you know what? You, you clapped for Tim Anderson and the White Sox, and everybody just I think really enjoyed. It, it's one game. I mean, you're never going to win 162 games, so yeah. Uh, it, it we're really I felt like we were all there just for that moment in time, that experience, and, and what a great game. We're talking with Brian Lapinto, Dan Malley, and Aaron Nelson, who Brian and Dan, of course, uh, were friends that went to the game, but they met Aaron, and now they formed a friendship from this game. So that's a beautiful thing. 
guys, this is baseball and barbecue. So we obviously have a a food part of this. So what were they serving? What did you eat? What's the food at the this game? Well, I know I know Aaron was talking about it, how um Guy Fieri had his his concoction of a hot dog stuffed in an apple pie. I read about that and it was the first time it was being served. I'm like, well, this is also the first game in Iowa. I'm going to try this thing. They were giving them out for free. I think Aaron mentioned Yeah, they were. So I tried it, and it it would I, it was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. And I ate the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as far as other food samplings, I don't know. I think, Dan, you tried a couple of things. It, it was kind of traditional ballpark fare. Yeah, I, I don't remember so anything too. out of the ordinary. Yeah, I wanted to stay away from apple pie hot dogs. I went with that traditional fare. They had a, a fairly standard selection, cheeseburgers, fries, chicken tenders, nachos. They had a, a Midwestern chicken sandwich, I believe they called it, which had chicken, some sort of like fruit with it. And really just kind of very standard, you know, even the standard prices. You know, I think a cheeseburger ran me about 10 bucks. And they had, had something with corn, right? I mean, they had pop, some popcorn there. I'm not sure, it, but it was a little different than. It was in a bag, so I think it might have been a local kind of vendor. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it was called Almost Famous or something. Yeah, you're right. It was. I was I was kind of hoping for, you know, hot corn, you know, corn on the cob. Like, I thought yeah. that would have been, like, super appropriate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that would have been very good. What about where – are there a lot of places to stay around there for lodging? Not not really that I found. I mean, of course, I, I booked so last minute – I stayed at air. I rented a room from a guy with an Airbnb, and then on Wednesday night, and then Thursday night after the game, I was going to crash at his place, but I decided to just try to drive. I was going to go to Milwaukee that that next next evening for, for the following day, and I made it an hour and a half and had to pull over and go to sleep because I, I was exhausted. But I, I didn't find much open in that surrounding area by the time I booked. I, got, I was lucky enough to get that one room. You no, know, and uh, you know what we did because of our my travel changes. We were going to stay um, in the Quad Cities in Davenport, but then decided to stay in Chicago. Saw the Cubs game, but it was kind of a little bit of a blessing in the sense that the road from Chicago to Dyersville, you had to go through a town called Galena, Illinois. Yeah. And Galena, Illinois, is where the setting is for Chisholm, Minnesota, in the movie. So we got to see the different locations. Where you know Doc Graham had you know met encountered Kevin Costner and and they went through town and that's when you know we see Burt Lancaster and uh, so that was a great thrill to kind of just see a little more of a movie set if you will on our way to the real movie set so it, it uh, felt very historic and maintained in Galena and some of those areas on the way mm-hmm. up there even though it's small towns very well kept. Galena yeah, is beautiful. I, I'm thinking I want to go back there. I, I thought the same thing. So, yeah. in, in, in closing, what what's your, uh, your your takeaways? What what's your impression? You know, this is going to be something you remember forever. I guess. Tell your grandchildren. You know, give us each of you. What's your final impressions? We'll start with we'll start with Dan. I think it was one of the absolute coolest experiences I've ever had. Um, definitely, probably the best baseball experience I ever had. MLB hit the nail on the head. They did a fantastic job. It was very apparent how much effort went into this and attention to detail. And it was clear they wanted to get it right. And they did. 
And um, I'm just really happy to have attended to say I was at the first one. And that's what I got. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Aaron. You know, for, for me, that, that movie just holds such a special place in my heart. And, you know, my dad's not alive anymore. And just watching it, I felt just taken back to when I was younger and just when I was when the game seemed a little more, maybe more pure and uh, innocent a little bit. And then you were just kind of swept up in it. And I don't think it's it might be a little ridiculous to say, but it felt like it was there was a little magic in the air. And when, when you leave the game and you walk back through cornfield and there's kid, there's kids playing catch with their dad on the field of dreams who may have played catch with their dad on that same field of dreams. 15 years earlier, it, it was just a beautiful moment that really just brought it all together. And I, I don't see how it could have actually been any better than it was, honestly. Nice. Nice. Brian. Yeah. I mean, I think to Aaron's point, you know, you know, my dad's no longer here as well. And that was a movie that he and I really loved and we would watch it often together. And, and, and that whole idea of playing catch a little different. I mean, I had a great relationship with my dad on like maybe Kevin Costner's in the film. But uh, we, we always played catch. He used to, you know, work two jobs. He'd come home from work, cook dinner. We'd play catch. He'd go to the second job. He used to play catch in the winter. He would buy an orange baseball for us to play catch. And so there was a lot of, of, of personal thing there. I, it was, I had to be there. And I had to be there to represent him. I was, I was glad to be there with my friend Dan, who I've known for a number of years now. So, and, and I think it's also given me like a, a little bit of a different perspective on things. And I think I'm going to kind of take from that uh, continue to push forward with Hinchcliffe Stadium, and I've never, I've never let down on that place. I've had my frustrations, but uh, I think I'm going to take my experience there and, and, and take that stadium advocacy to the next level, whatever that means. We thank you guys for being with us. Appreciate it. Love the hearing you, your experiences at, at the yeah, really in Dyersville, Iowa, and you know, keep in touch with us. Great. Yeah, appreciate thank you guys, guys having me on, and it was very nice to meet all y'all and. Share, share these moments. Thank yes. you. Guys, tell all your friends, baseball and barbecue. We are the number one baseball and barbecue podcast because I, I can't think of anyone else that does that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we are so happy that you joined us because this was uh, this was fantastic. And so thank you very much, guys. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, guys. Pleasure. Yep. And we want to th- thank these three guys who came on the show. Tell us about their experiences at Dyersville, Iowa, and talk about the Field of Dreams game. It sounds like it's one of those special things that they're going to do, you know, once in a lifetime. But <laughs> knowing new baseball, actually, they've scheduled a new new Field of Dreams game for next year, the Reds and the Cubs. So right away. <laughs> anything worth doing is worth overdoing. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, you know, it'll be very interesting how long you know, the, the movie was 30 years ago, over 30 years ago, right? So it's interesting because how long will they do this game, you know, right. with this, yeah. you know, in this cornfield? Yeah. How many years? Maybe they do it enough, ticket prices come down, and eventually we can get to the game. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jeff, you did such a great job introducing them. Go ahead. Who's our next guest? And here's Andrea Williams. Baseball's leading lady, Effa Manley, and the rise and fall of the Negro League. Here's Andrea Williams. Baseball and BBQ is honored to have with us Andrea Williams. She has written a new book called Baseball's Leading Lady, 
Ephraim Manley and the rise and fall of the Negro Leagues. Baseball's leading lady is a powerful true story of Ephraim Manley, the first and only woman inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame. Ethel was a co-owner, business manager of the Newark Eagles, and created a powerful team which included Hall of Famers Monty Irwin, Ray Danridge, and Larry Doby, to name a few. But she was much more than a baseball owner. She was a social activist who fought for civil rights in the days before Jackie Robinson and Martha Luther King. Andrea is an author and journalist who worked in the marketing and development for the Eagle League Museum in her hometown of Kansas City, Missouri, before turning to writing full-time. She now lives in Nashville, Tennessee, Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Andrea. Welcome, Yay, Andrea. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Your book opens prior to the birth of Ethel Manley. You begin with a, a, a little bit of history of, Negro, of why the Negro Leagues have to come to be. You talk about George Stovey and Moses Fleetwood, and also Octavius Cato, I believe you pronounce it. Could you please tell us the role these men had in the beginning of professional baseball? Yeah, I want it ultimately, and I have, I have gotten feedback from people that are like, you know, this is, I was just expecting Effa in the Effa biography, and there's a lot more than Effa in the Effa biography, but I, I did that intentionally. I understood, particularly because this book is written for kids, that there would be a lot of kids who'd never heard of the Negro Leagues at all, even if they may have heard of, of Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson, not really understanding, you know, why we had separate, you know, entities, separate teams and leagues for, for Black people, but also the long road to get there, right? And so if I'm writing about Effa and I'm talking about the significance of her career, I think we have to talk about these people who came before, you know, even going back to before baseball was officially organized, you know, amongst Black people. And yeah, George Stovey and Moses Fleetwood Walker. Moses Fleetwood Walker was, you know, he's the first Black player to play professionally um, who kind of, you know, got got forced out a little bit, you know, post-gentleman's agreement in the sense that, you know, once his contract was up, they had already decided they weren't going to sign any new contracts. But George Stovey, you know, he he was he was one of one of Moses' contemporaries who played in that time as well. Octavius Cotto actually goes back a little bit before that and was, you know, really instrumental in in organizing teams, putting teams together. He had an athletic background, but he is, you know, one of the earliest men who we see step up in the sense of like, let me put a team together. I can see that, you know, baseball is is growing in popularity. There's an opportunity here to make money. Yes. But to also, you know, organize within the community and use this team maybe to move the people ahead. How do we use this team to, you know, provide jobs? Cause there's money here, like I said, but also show what black people are really about to show that black people you know, are are more than what white people thought they were in 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 the eighteen hundreds, and yeah, we got to talk about these guys before we get to even Rube Foster because they really laid the groundwork for him, and then of course Rube lays the groundwork for Gus Greenlee, who starts the second Na- Negro National League, of which Effa's team was a part. So yeah, to me, it all works together. You can't tell one story without the other. So yeah, I, I get a lot of people that are that are excited about all of this extra history, if you will, even though they weren't necessarily anticipating it. Andrea, well, the book is called Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues by Andrea Williams. And you just said something. You said, written for kids. Now, I, I'm going to tell you, the only thing that I found even remotely 
that might be for kids was the fact that it's double spaced, which I appreciated. <laughs> I heard you on a on a podcast with Anika Orock. Yeah. And you guys talked about that and how Anika said people ask her, you know, if she wrote her book for children. This might be what you call a young adult reader. Yeah. But then this is what my reading level is <laughs> because I, I loved the book. I think that it, it should be read by everyone. I agree. <laughs> it, it's such, it, it, I don't care baseball history, history, history. You, this is a necessary book to read. And I think that the way you wrote it is perfect for everyone. So I don't want anyone to think that this is a kid's book because it is not. Yeah, I love I do. it so much. Yeah, I, I, I say that because I think I want kids to know that they can come to this and and read it and hang with it and come to it with, with zero baseball knowledge or, or mm-hmm. Negro League, Negro League knowledge. Cause I'm gonna get all that in there and you can, you know, really start from scratch. But I, I say that, well, number one, I, I did, I really did write it for kids. I have kids. My oldest is 13. She reads voraciously probably more than the other kids, but she doesn't really love nonfiction. And, you know, I, I think, the process of, you know, she knew when I was working on this book and she was never really excited about it. You know, I got to be honest, even I talk about Ethel a lot in this house and she still was kind of like, and it took her a little while, even after it came out, like I had the advanced copy, she didn't read that, but you know, it was, it had been out already for like a month or so before she sat down and read it. And she, and she told me that, you know, wow, mom, this is, this is really good. It's like a page turner. So that was probably like the best compliment that I've gotten. And so for me, I I wanted to do that for kids, like having children, I can see the gaps, you know, in kid lit, particularly on the nonfiction side, you know, kids are, they want it to be fun, right? This idea of like reading, you know, something outside of a textbook, you know, particularly on your own, you know, I, I do hope that that schools assign this book and teachers assign this book. But I also want kids to pick it up and read it on their own. And and that's not really happening with nonfiction a lot. And so I wanted to kind of help fill in those gaps and provide something that is, is educational, but, but also entertaining. And that is really written with kids in mind. So when I am saying, yes, 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 it's for kids. It's because a, that is how it's put together and marketed, but also because I don't want kids to feel intimidated, right? Like when you, particularly when you get to the high school level, like in terms of reading ability, you can read adult books, right? Like, I mean, I was, you know, in high school and reading books that were technically written for adults, but again, when you get into the nonfiction space, when we're talking about historical narrative nonfiction, it can be overwhelming. I mean, as an adult, I feel overwhelmed by some of the stuff that's out there, particularly if I'm new to it, right? Like if I have no knowledge of the Negro Leagues and what it was about, and I wanted to just start reading, like there's so much. And then also a lot of these books are like 400 pages long and like, who has the time for that? So I'm saying, yes, children, <laughs> like you, it's not that kind of an overwhelming thing. It is, it is detailed and, you know, there's a lot going on, but not overwhelmingly so. And I think also the way I kind of wove in and out from baseball history with more general history is, is, is with kids in mind, because, you know, I'm cognizant of the fact that when they are learning things, most of the time they're learning them as these like separate, like individual events and not able to see 
how everything connects, how history works as this, you know, continual through line that, you know, everything working together in concert. I wanted to provide that in a way that a lot of times kids books don't, you know, we get the biography that's just the biography, you know, about that individual. And we don't really know fully like, what their lives meant to the larger society, but also how the larger society impacted them. And I wanted to make sure all of that was there. But yeah, it is 100% for adults as well. Like, I mean, I'm an adult and I read kids books all the time because I write for kids. Like nonfiction, fiction, I read all the kids stuff. Because yeah, like I said, a lot of times, like I don't, I don't want to sit with stuff for 400 pages. Like I don't have time for that. I have four kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to work and write, like do all the things. So yeah, it is a hundred percent. It's for kids first, but it is for everyone. Excellent. I mentioned in the opening that you worked for the, uh, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I don't want to assume, but is that where you got the idea to write about Ethel Manley? Yes. I worked there right out of undergrad for about two and a half years. And that was really, really when I was introduced to Effa story and really first started digging in and understanding who she was and how important her work was. But it took me a long time to get to the point of, you know, deciding that I wanted to write this book and certainly even like conceptualizing it in this final form, you know, this book that is written for kids, like, I couldn't have I couldn't have thought of that in, you know, in 2004 through 2007 when I was at the museum and I didn't have kids and I was, you know, just a 20 something that was thinking that me being at the museum was my was was just a pit stop in route to a front office for me. So, you know, I say that this book is like 14, 15 years in the making. That's really about how long it took for me to kind of like get my bearings about me and like really understand like what not just how to put a book like this together, but what I ultimately wanted to accomplish. But 100%, had I not worked at the museum, even me saying, you know, growing up, being this huge baseball fan, Black girl wanting to work in baseball had still never heard of Effa, which like in retrospect is wild to me. But, you know, that again is just further impetus for writing this, particularly for kids, because I want that next Black girl to have this book far earlier than I did. Now, Effa, Effa Manley, she, what I thought was amazing about her, and please, if, if I'm saying anything that's wrong, let me know, because I'll often say wrong, you know, things that I get out of books. But she had the, because of her, her mother and her father, right? She was of a mixed family. Uh, she, her, her father was white, right? She had the ability to, it seemed to me, to not, how do I put this? She did not have to be of the African-American community. Right. She did, but she chose it. She felt that is where she felt her, almost like a bond, right? She wanted to do everything she could for the community. And it went beyond baseball. Right. She was was part of that. You have something in the book that's fantastic with a department store that wasn't hiring African-American employees. And she helped with this whole boycott and got to have people hired. So she, she did, she wanted to help her community and she chose that to be her community and she did everything she could for it. That was just a beautiful thing about her as well. The people should know. Yeah, I mean, I liken it to 
for her at this, particularly at this moment in American history, it is it is about race and race is the social construct. Mm-hmm. And there are, there were people from the black community who had the option to to decide like where they would stand on that. Certainly we are still divided by race even today, but, but I liken it to if there's, you know, if there's a a black kid who, you know, grows up, you know, maybe in the hood and and his family doesn't have a lot of money, but he goes on and maybe, maybe he plays professional baseball or basketball or football Mm -hmm. or whatever. And now he has all this money, right? Now he has more options from a financial perspective, from a class perspective. He now gets to decide where he wants to be. He can go back to that community from where where he was raised and help those people there who don't have the privilege that he now has because he makes however many millions of dollars a year, or he could not, right? He can go out to the suburbs and live in the gated community and have the big mansion with the full house staff and all that other stuff. And so this isn't a decision that is based on financial position. It really is about, at this point, race is really the thing. But Effa was in that position. She could decide. And I think because, you know, I've said that for for most of us, we are, again, race being the social construct that is really about what you look like, who your parents were, that kind of thing. The the vast majority of us, we are what we are. We don't get to decide, right? Most Mm -hmm. Black people, it's like, you, you are just that. And so... You learn how to deal with that, you know, however, however you deal with that. You know, some people deal with it better than others. Some people are are obviously black and trying to shake that at every chance that they get, right? Like, you know, OJ Simpson is 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 so good in football that he is going to transcend his blackness in his mind. That's how badly he wants to disassociate himself from that. But Effa in having this decision and choosing her blackness, I think means she is that much more committed to it, right? Yes. In a way, sometimes even then people, like I said, who just wake up and this is what it is, and you got to deal with it. Her making this intentional decision absolutely drives her forward in terms of all this work that she's doing, leading this boycott of this department store in Harlem, going into black baseball, not just running this team that is providing jobs for for people in the black community and also providing this outlet for people in the black community to come and escape, you know, the rest of the world, but also to to advocate for the community. She's hosting anti-lynching protests and raising money for the local chapter of the NAACP. She goes that hard because every day she's waking up and deciding this. This is what I want to be a part of. She was born in Philadelphia and eventually moved to Harlem in New York City. Is that where she would meet her husband, Abe? And can you talk about their courtship? Yeah, she she met him in Harlem and they... Their courtship, we don't have a ton of information about it in the same way. I, I had someone ask me, you know, well, did I have any girlfriends? Like, who are, who are the girls that she hung out with? And we do have a lot of information because Effa kept these meticulous files and letters and all these things. And now they are housed at the Newark Public Library. And it's interesting because Effa, we don't really see a lot of the stuff outside of baseball. Like that was really the focal point for her. Like she, she would write letters back and forth to Abe and she'd sign them, you know, baby and things like that. But really like, she was like super, super focused on running this business and really providing again, this platform to, to, to push the community forward. But yeah, she, 
she they they dated and they got married and pretty quickly they are you know I I, I say like they're still in this honeymoon period right like I've been thir- I've been married to my husband for 13 years and I'm like I'm still learning stuff every day and they like just gotten married and already they're going into business together right like it was pretty quickly that not only do they decide to buy this team yes with Abe's money but Abe is also really quickly like here go run the thing. So, you know, there were, they, they had this relationship. I do absolutely believe that they were in love, but they really had a partnership that was established pretty early on that I just think is so remarkable. They had this shared love of baseball, but also they were able to come together and, and run this team that ended up really making history. And just to follow up, because you just mentioned it, yeah, you know, they, I guess they purchased a team around 1935, I believe, and uh, Abe effort to run the front office responsibilities. Among them was like scheduling, traveling, the equipment, and eventually FNA moved the team. Well, they were in Brooklyn. They moved the team to Newark. What was the reasoning behind moving the team to Jersey? Yeah, they just, it, the New York market was really, really tight, right? Like in Major League Baseball, which, you know, Effa, Effa had grown up, you know, once she, when she left Philly after, after graduating from high school and moved to Harlem, like she spent those early adult years, like following the Yankees. Like she would walk from her apartment in Harlem to go see the Yankees play at the polo ground. So there, and there were other black people too, who went and watched, you know, these white baseball teams play. So you, so in terms of a black team in a community, you're not just competing for fans with other black teams. You're also competing with the white teams too. And in New York, they've got the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Giants. And they also have all of these black teams that you know, they didn't, it, they didn't have a home base in the sense that this is where my home stadium is because by and large, black team owners they didn't ho- they didn't own their own stadium either. They rented them from from white teams, but they but they kind of like set up shop in in New York. That was kind of their unofficial headquarters. And so yeah, it was it was difficult just to to kind of scratch out an existence and make enough make a large enough flash in the market that they could make money. Ultimately, in this time of baseball, there there's no merch sales, there's no TV deals. You're making money from tickets. And so particularly when we're dealing with the black community and extra money is tight. These people are probably not going to six different games, you know, from six different teams, you know, they're going to pick one. And so they needed to be in a space where there were fewer options where they could capture more of the market and make more money. Black baseball teams operated on a shoestring. Again, they were renting stadiums. They were often paying booking agents. They needed to get as much as they could on in ticket sales. And it was easier to do that in a less crowded market like Newark. It makes absolute sense. And the thing when you're reading this is that you keep having to remind yourself is she not only faced uh, racism because of her skin color, but because of her gender. I mean, yes, women were working then, but not in positions. They weren't running teams. They weren't in in this position, uh, money or not. She there were there were instances in the book where. You know, it kind of re- refers to the fact that, wait, but this, she's a woman. And so it's double amazing, doubly amazing yeah. that, that she was able to persevere and just, you get the feeling that, that she, she left the men in, her, in, in the dust. They, they, you really do. I mean, it's just, 
so what a remarkable woman she was. She really yeah. just Yeah, she definitely wasn't the first woman to own a team. There were there were there were white women in Major League Baseball who, you know, they would inherit inherit teams from, you know, husbands and fathers and things like that, but they they didn't really run the teams, right? They they hired a president or a general manager or right. someone who would come in and handle the day-to-day. Ethel was put in a position where she had to run it. And a lot of that was again Black teams operated on a shoestring. There wasn't a ton of staff to go around. So really, Effa falls into this position just out of necessity, right? Like, Abe, I think, also just really isn't interested in that side of it. You know, he'd already purchased the team and it didn't do well. And, you know, a lot of that was because, you know, he, he bought the team in 1929 and it failed because of the Great Depression. But he was he was he was a guy's guy. Like he wanted to be on the road and hang with the team and hop on the bus and you know go on scouting trips and go on away go to away games. So he really didn't have a ton of interest in what was happening in in the front office of his team. Even even in being you know appointed to the position of treasurer with the Negro National League, he wasn't really doing that either. Like Ethel was doing that. And again, it was just a by necessity type of thing. If Abe doesn't want to do that and they don't really have the money to hire somebody else just to run the day to day, just to make sure that we've got the equipment and we're so who's going to negotiate the player salaries and who's going to plan the schedules. That means Effa has to do it. She's the wife, right? Like <laughs> somebody's got to do it. So she really kind of fell into this position again out of necessity, but a hundred percent the fact that she is a woman doing this is really remarkable. And I say that, you know, I've had people that are like, well, why was like who, you know, here we are in, in, in 2021. Kim Ang is the first female general manager of Major League Baseball team with the Miami Marlins. Mm-hmm. Why do we have this gap between EFA and, and Kim in terms of a woman like really running the day to day on that level? Again, there were other, even after EFA, there were women in the Negro Leagues who inherited teams, but um, inherited inherited it. <laughs> Am I saying that right? Inherited teams from, from husbands and fathers. Ed Bolden on the East Coast, he, you know, he had the Hilldale Daisies and um, the Philly Stars, and he passed his team down to his daughter. But at that point, you know, the Negro Leagues is really in its waning years, right? Like, F was running this team at the height of Black baseball, when during those World War II years, all this money is coming in. Then, of course, as we bump up against integration, and we've got this whole thing playing out in the media, F was running that team then. And now here again, here we are all the way in 2021 with Kim. And I tell people that EFA, if not for the Negro Leagues, I mean, EFA's existence in terms of being able to put together this career that is obviously now Hall of Fame worthy. She is inducted into Cooperstown, the first and only woman. It is because of the Negro Leagues. It is because of the existence of the separate thing that is apart from Major League Baseball. Effa could have been that same woman. She could have been white. She could have chosen to pass and have been that same woman with the same personality and tenacity and savvy and negotiation skill. And she would not have been able to build that career. It is only because of the Negro Leagues and because they needed her. Because again, of this, of these shoestring budgets and these really, really lean staffs that she was able to come in and, and have the kind of control and and really opportunity to to do this job you, you know she, she could not have done this in back then in regular baseball yeah. so it, regular you know in, in the in the white baseball major league baseball there it, obviously she couldn't have so but she did so so much good she she really did but jeff i cut you off i'm sorry 
I want to talk about Pepper, like you were just talking about Pepper, the businesswoman. She had great business acumen. I mean, she was I mean, she was going up against uh, Gus Greenlee and, and Cumberland Posey and telling them, you know, get your standings and get your statistics in right, make sure it, it's right. And so I, I really admire that acumen. But I wanted to ask you about the time when Branch Rickey asked her for a meeting, which turned out not to be a meeting at all. And uh, she must she must have been surprised by that. And I was actually surprised the way Branch Rickey, I would say, poached, I guess, uh, Jackie Robinson from the Kansas City Monarchs, where Effa was saying, wait a second, mm-hmm. we, we, we have these people on the contract. You want to purchase them? You got to compensate us. She was really in the forefront in front of that. Could you please talk about that? Yeah. Branch Rickey, in the same way that, you know, I say, well, to understand who Effa is, in running this baseball team, we have to understand who Effa was before that, right? She leads this boycott in Harlem. She is always this woman who is about her people, who is an advocate for this community. Branch Rickey, who is the guy who signs, you know, the first Black player in baseball's modern era, he's also the guy that develops the, the farm system that helps him in St. Louis develop this powerhouse club, this dynasty, really, with very little money spent, right? Like we can sign these guys when they're young and they're underdeveloped and we'll develop them in-house. And then we don't have to compete in the open market. We don't have to spend all this money. In fact, we can make money because if, you know, as they come along, if they never get to where we really need them to be for, for our main club, or actually they just don't fit into the system, well, we can deal them on the open market and we're still going to make this fabulous return on our initial investment. This is who this guy is. So now when he gets to dot, when he gets to Brooklyn with the Dodgers and he's trying to turn the Dodgers into this powerhouse club, he's still the guy that wants to do that and spend as little money as possible. Okay. So it also perfectly coincides with this moment where everybody's pushing particularly in the black community, we're pushing for integration, right? And, you know, I I say all the time, and it sounds, you know, it sounds so harsh, but it is the truth. Black people really got what they asked for, which was to have a black player on a white team. They didn't ask for fair compensation. They didn't ask that black managers or executives get to come along. They just wanted to see a player get signed by a white team. And that's what they got. So, Branch Rickey was able to take advantage of that, of the emotion of the time in the sense that people are pushing for integration. I can give you that, but I'm going to do it on my terms and run this team the way I like to run a baseball team. And I'm not going to spend any money. And what is anybody going to say about that? Right. What are you going to say if you are an owner in the Negro Leagues and you know that the community, the black press, Your players are pushing for this thing, too, because that is what we have always believed was the best end goal is to get over there where the white team is. Right. That is what we have always, always believed. If we go back to slavery in this country, the the prevailing notion has been that. And this is not just white people saying it. When they say it long enough, we some of us start to believe it, too, that what we are doing is second to that. And we are not equal until we get to where they are. So I think that the statement for Major League Baseball is so important. It's not just saying to white people what we were doing over here was on the same level as what you were doing over there. It's also saying to black people, we can run our own teams in leagues 
And we can be separate but equal. Black people need to hear that because back then they didn't, too many people didn't believe that, which is why we have this situation where white people are saying, Grand Shriki is saying, okay, I will let this guy or a couple guys come over and he is able to silence a whole community and convince them to not fight for their businesses, for their worth because of this one carrot. You know, Andrea, you're right. I think because when you're when you put down for so long, I think that they saw that just the one thing, the one thing to get one person into the game, it was a start. I don't think they ever even would have thought that, you know, if we had a somebody in the front office or this, I, you're right. It was like just that little thing. But but I want to I want to just follow that up with and, and you could comment on that. But Branch Rickey, as I'm reading this book, and it's not the only one we just we were just reading. Jeff, what's what's the book we were reading? The team by Luke Lepton. Right. But Branch Rickey does not come across great in in some of these books. I wonder, like, did you start off having any thoughts about him and then it changed? Because, see, I will tell you this. Before I started this podcast, right, with Jeff, and we started really learning more and more about the Negro Baseball League, and we've done a lot with it, and we want to do a lot more. And we just, because we love baseball, and it's part of the history. It's an amazing history. I always thought Brant Tricky was, you know, this guy who, oh, look at him. He's, you know, he's, he's the modern, you know, he, he integrates baseball after 60 plus years, you know, he integrates baseball. And now, you know what? I think Branch Rickey may have been, I, I don't want to say, he may have, he's kind of like an SOB. You know? <laughs> you know? But he really comes across like that. I mean, he's, he's taken the players. Oh, well, you know, it's not really a league, you know, and, and it's all in your book where he talks about, so it's not really a league and, and I'm not, they don't really have contracts and I could just, and he just, he acts like he could just do whatever the heck he wants. And it just makes me really, I mean, yes, he, he, he definitely, he, he did bring, you know, Jackie Robinson in, he integrated baseball, but, but man, his methods were, were really not, were not great. And I, and I've learned that and it's, it's definitely changed my opinion. How, how do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, I, again, having worked at the museum and, and, and knowing this stuff, wasn't surprised, obviously. I mean, I was, you know, the research is like going in to newspaper archives and pulling these actual, you know, conversations, like these press conferences where he's going on record saying this stuff, like really denigrating the the Negro Leagues. But, you know, again, having worked there and really understanding this history, being exposed to it, you know, right out of undergrad, so I come in knowing that the Negro Leagues existed, but not really understanding, you know, the significance of the business side of it. So I am learning the truth about Branch Rickey as I am learning that. And so in that regard, it it wasn't shocking as much as it was just a part of the story. And I think for people like you that say like, oh, gosh, I just learned this. And now I'm like, I think it is it is this is the way American history functions. Like you feel like that because I think part of it is that you feel like you've been lied to, right? Like if you had learned from the beginning, this truth, I mean, you might've still felt like he was an SOB, but I think again, part of that, that visceral, you know, anger to it is because, well, why did I not know that he was an SOB, you know, all this time? And so, 
Yeah, I wasn't surprised by it, but I really wanted to make sure people understand that because I do feel like we are working against generations of history in terms of how these stories, how these narratives have been crafted for the public. You know, I tell people, you know, we we're so used to this scene that like has been dramatized in film and in books. And, you know, this moment where Branch Rickey calls Jackie Robinson into his office and I need somebody who's strong enough. And he's telling them all the things that he's going to going to have to endure as this black baseball player. And I'm like, nobody ever says anything about the fact that Jackie Robinson is in there by himself, that Branch Rickey has pulled this man over into a corner this is like agents aren't really a thing then, but like, where are, where, where are the representatives from the monarchs? Like, how are you again? And this is Branch Rickey who knows better. This is Branch Rickey. This is not a guy who's been in baseball for like a season or two. This guy is in his sixties. He is a veteran executive. Okay. He knows how to play this game and he pulled a player off in a corner by himself. We never talk about that. We never talk about that. We focus on the fact that like, oh my gosh, look how brave and courageous Jackie was because he just nodded his head and said, yes, boss, I won't say nothing. Like, and that is because that is what they want us, you know, they, this this proverbial they, the people who we've always given the pen and, and entrusted with telling these stories. Well, I'm coming in and I'm saying, there's another story here. Yeah. Now look at this thing from all angles. What does it mean when he pulls him to the side and 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 Jackie is agreeing in the same way? And I kind of touched on this in the book. In the same way that Jackie is agreeing to endure this torture on the field, really, there's a larger sacrifice that the black community has to make. It's unspoken. We don't talk about it. You know, the black owners got to take this L. We got to say, okay, here we are representing the community. We know people are going to be pissed if we push back against this. If we take Branch Ricky to court, we have a right to do that. We got to take this L. The the Black community that that shows up to support Jackie, they got to agree to not get pissed too. Yeah. Yeah. Jackie Robinson can't push back against the slurs and the hate, and neither can the Black people and the fans. Like, all of the all of these parts of the conversation have gone unspoken for so long. So. Yeah, it's not a surprise to me again because I've been I've been with this for so long for 15 14 15 years, 16 mm-hmm. years, but I get that it is for a lot of people because yeah. this is just the way the stories have always been told. Yeah. Well, baseball's leading lady, mainly and the right and fault of the Negro leagues, I was able to negotiate a contract uh, selling Larry Doby to the Indians and got compensated. Whether the price was fair or not. <laughs> not fair. Not well, fair. We, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's in the book. It's in the book. And it's not fair. Exactly. Even say, was, even it say was, if it had been a white ball player yeah. that, that you would given him, he would have gotten 100000 right. And they offer her 10000 And then an yeah, extra 5000 stays on the team. Right. That's if he stayed on the team for a month, she'd get another yeah. 5000 And he, here's right. the thing. I. What is, she going, what is she going to say, though? Right. At least Bill Vett called. Branch Rickey right. did not call her for Don Nuckel. Right. She didn't get a phone call. Right. So, yeah, she knows it's not fair. 
she also, I think, is practical enough in running this team that she's like, this is a matter of formality. If Bill Vec wants Larry Doby, he can get Larry Doby the same way that Branch Rickey got Don Newcomb and Roy Campanella and Jackie Robinson. He is just being nice. <laughs> like, this is the unfortunate reality of the situation. So if, if Larry Doby is as good as gone, let me at least get something out of the situation. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you. We want to end on a high note. <laughs> so let's go back to 1946. The New York Eagles defeat the Kansas City Monarchs in seven games, and some of the greatest players ever played the game was in that game. Satchel Paige, Buck O'Neill, Hank Thompson, Larry Doby, Monty Irwin. That must have been the pinnacle of FMLA's career. Yeah, it was. She everything that she did ultimately, you know, she well, it, it was two part. It was about the community for sure. It was about uplifting black people. But Effa was competitive and she wanted to win. Like she's like, if we're gonna be out here doing this baseball thing, if I'm gonna be running this little team, like I wanna win. And and she and she did. They won, they won that 1946 World Series, as you mentioned. And now again, going back to this recent announcement for Major League Baseball, when Major League Baseball says that we are elevating the status of the Negro Leagues, that's not just player stats, right? That it that means that this Negro World Series is on par with the, the Major League Baseball World Series. It means that now Effa Manley did not just run a baseball team. She won a World Series championship baseball team. It means that the manager of that team didn't just run some, you know, he didn't just, just manage some, you know, random black, you know, Sandlot team. Like he managed, a black man managed a World Series championship black baseball team. So yeah, that, that championship meant everything. It, it, it validated the work that she'd been doing. It showed that she knew what she was doing, right? Like she, she had numerous, um, you know, as, as, as you said at the beginning of this, she had numerous future Hall of Famers that, that played for her. So yeah, it, it 100%, it's a perfect way to end because it shows not just that she was running this team, that she was play, handling player contracts and negotiations and, you know, handling the business, but that she was really, really good at her job. Andrea, how do you feel? I got to ask you one last thing because you, you brought it up. What's your feeling on the fact that now Major League Baseball is recognizing the accomplishments and the stats and everything of, of the Negro Leagues? What, what do you feel about that? Yeah, I think it's important. You know, shortly after the announcement, there was kind of there were there were differing you know opinions on that and some people saying, you know, we didn't need that. We, we know, you know, particularly us black folk, we know that, that, that the Negro leagues were of that caliber. They were just operating on the margins because that's where major league baseball forced them. All of that is true. But as I mentioned earlier, white people don't just need to know this, but there are some black people too. If we, if we go backward in time to 1948, when Jackie Robinson has already been with the Dodgers, been successful at this point, he goes to the to Ebony magazine goes to the press and completely rips apart the Negro Leagues. Completely. Yes. Yeah, and that's in your book. He he needed to be reminded of this, right? He needed to be reminded of this. Yes. Also, Branch Rickey, in terms of how he again poaches these players, doesn't pay for them, how he really sets up the Negro Leagues to fail financially. He needed to know this. Happy Chandler who refused to step in 
Mm-hmm. He needed to know this. It matters even in retrospect. We cannot rewind time and right. say, no, Branch Ricky, we are the same as you. You must deal fairly with us, but at least we can start to repair the historical record. Because now when we look back and we've got these quotes where Branch Ricky is saying, oh, that's just a racket. They're not even real leagues. Well, now, according to Major League Baseball, your, your <laughs> presiding entity says, no, you're wrong. He was wrong when he said that. So yeah, it's, it's hugely important to me. Good. Good. Then I'm glad it was done. I was uh, going to say to get the book, you can go to Amazon, but I'd rather people go to the local bookstores. I know you have one in Nashville called Parnassus Books. Yes. P-A-R-N-A-S-S-U-S books.net. Yes. And I'm sure you can get any other independent bookstore. Anything else that you would like to plug? Anyway, anybody can get reach out to you if they want an autographed copy, please. Yeah, if if you order from Parnassus Books, which is my local independent shop, they do have some signed stock and they will send a signed copy out. And yeah, that that's all I got. I'm on I'm on social media at Andrea Will Write at Andrea Will Write. So follow me there. I write about baseball sometimes and also <laughs> country music sometimes. And so you know those articles I post online and yeah, Andrea. We unfortunately, I wish we had more time with you, but will you and we, this is being recorded, so I, <laughs> we're going to know. Will you come back on with us sometime? Because I, I think we've only scratched the surface and I would yeah. love to talk to you more about the book and just in general, this this whole topic. It's, yes. it's you know, we really we appreciate your time and, and we'd love to have you back. Yes, I would absolutely love to come back. I know we had to do a bit of rescheduling, so I appreciate y'all being flexible. And absolutely, I will come back whenever y'all would like me to. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you. And we'd like to thank Andrea Williams with a great interview. And like Len said earlier, we're pulling back the curtain. We had a little audio difficulty, so I am going to be taking us the rest of the way. And with that... I just want to say we really appreciate Andrea Williams coming on the show. And our next interview is with Joey Machado, who represents Blue's Hog Barbecue. Not just sauces, there's rubs, there's marinades, there's a lot of good stuff. And also Gateway Drum Smokers. This is a really interesting conversation with Joey Machado, and I hope you enjoy it. This is only part one. There will be a part two on next episode, so enjoy. This is an interview that's long overdue. With increasing exposure, chefs have become media celebrities, and that celebrity has reached the world of barbecue. Ask a baseball fan to Google the name Joey Machado, which I did, and you will be amazed at how many people come up, a lot of baseball players, college players, a lot. There was a real estate agent, but ask a barbecue fan to Google Joey Machado, and they say, we don't need to. Why don't they need to? Because he has done so much for the in the barbecue world, whether it's promoting B&B charcoal or his current job promoting Blues Hog and Gateway Drum Smokers, that he has become an extremely well-known person in the industry. It is our honor. It is our pleasure. And as I said, it is our long overdue time to welcome to baseball and barbecue joey machado joey welcome hey thank you very much i appreciate that intro 
I tell you what, thinking about everything that you just said, you know, that's uh, my, my history in barbecue has been very, very, very good. It's been good to me. It's been good to my family. And it, it is, it's true passion, you know, and it, I didn't start in the barbecue business, but I wound up here and I love it. Oh, okay. That, that's great. Why don't you tell us how you got started in the barbecue business? Well, I tell you what, I actually, I've been a competition barbecue cook for 22 plus years. My kids are, uh, I've got a set of twins, boy, girl twins that are 19 now. And uh, so that's about right, about 22 plus years. And barbecue, I've always been kind of a sales marketing guy. And uh, so that was kind of my thing was getting involved into uh, barbecue because I saw a marketing angle. And, you know, that that's how we did it. Local, I had a friend of mine who actually was uh, in the RV business at the time. And I was kind of helping him out, getting started with his business and uh, trying to figure out a way how to bring customers to his door. And one of the one of the big things that happens in our area, I'm from a very small town. So, you know, we're 30,000, you know, people in, in our town, you know, pretty much growing up, I knew everybody from the judge to every police officer, you name it, knew everybody in town. So it was kind of one of those things that uh, we had a local county fair barbecue cook-off and I thought that it was going to be the perfect opportunity to go out there and, you know, start pitching these trailers out to people. And, and so when we did, I honestly, I didn't even really cook. So I really didn't know anything about it. You know, we borrowed a pit, showed up in an event. You know, the idea was, is, you know, where somebody was buying a trailer before the end of the day. And we wound up having such a great time. We kind of thought it was more of a drinking contest than a barbecue contest uh, by the time it was all said and done. With that being said, I, I, I don't even think I really turned anything in. You know, had a great time, <laughs> stayed up all night. You visited with everyone, you know, got, you know, everyone who was there taught me, told me their way how to cook and, you know, that I was going about it all the wrong way. And obviously it was because I didn't win anything, but it planted a seed and that seed went on to get me very, very, you know, every year I'd go back to this little cook-off and I, you know, just thought I was going to do better and better and better every time I went. And it took me probably about five years before I think I ever got a walk, you know, got a call and, you know, placed Mm -hmm. high enough to, to mean anything. And from that point on, we just kind of, of course, during that time, we had kids, we had small kids, we, you know, so we were showing up, it was a big family affair, you know, type of thing. And it just wound up that I, I found a passion for this. I found a passion for the people. And it was that one event every year that we would look forward to, you know, going to cook. And, you know, in the meanwhile, we found a few other cook-offs here and there that we would, you know, go and get involved in. And along the way and over the years, we picked up more and more little hints and tips and tricks and, you know, that type of deal, bought more equipment you know, made a bigger investment in time, money, energy, you name it, in trying to understand how to conquer the sport. After a while, I just got tired of losing and had just, you know, said, I'm going to learn how to do this. It took me probably about seven years, you know, of just going out there and just getting my rear end handed to me every weekend before I, I, you know, got on a path. And for us in Texas, when you go and cook competition barbecue, you cook a brisket, you cook a chicken, a full jointed 
half of a chicken. You cook a whole slab of spare ribs. And usually at every single one of these, you would do a jackpot entry, which was pinto beans. And so, you know, you, you walked in there, you had four shots to do good. And, you know, if you couldn't do good at any of them, you just had to kind of focus on one and try to see if you could hammer that one down and then just kind of move forward. And that was kind of the process we went on. You know, all of a sudden, you know, we started doing well on beans and said, all right, we're done with that. Leave that one alone. Let's work on this next one. And, you know, and that we progressed throughout that whole deal until we had, you know, over a period of years, we finally had conquered every single one of those proteins. That's what got us kind of in the mode of pursuing it further outside of our comfort zone, which was, you know, outside of our backyard and going and competing more. There's a an organization for us here in Texas, which is called uh, IBCA, which is the International Barbecue Association. Even though it says international, I don't think there's ever, there wasn't ever a contest outside of Texas until, <laughs> you know, last few years. The intention was always there to grow, but, you know, I think they would have some in New Mexico or some in Louisiana, but I think that was about as far as they ever went. So anyways, I, I got more involved with that organization, uh, became a member met more and more cooks, you know, understood what it took to to become a winner. And one of the biggest things getting involved in competition barbecue, everyone thinks that it's just trying to learn how to cook. And probably the most the, the biggest shortcut you could take besides going and sitting in a class and paying someone to teach you how they cook is judging. Is when you go and sit down and you judge different categories you really understand that the flavor profiles that come across and what people are putting on, on their product. So that's really one of the shortcuts that I took. I, I didn't take very many classes. I only took like maybe one or two classes from individuals. The main thing was, is understanding the flavor profiles and not only the flavor profiles, but the doneness, you know, how was the skin on the chicken? You know, how was the texture of the meat? It was all those little things and trying to understand how, people got there. And then I started understanding, you know, there's a whole underbelly of barbecue. You know, it's, it's about phosphates and, and one bite wonder, you know, things that you can do to this one, one little piece that you're sending into that judge. And that's what competition barbecue is. It's not barbecue that you're going to feed your family over the weekend. It's a one bite. And whether it's the first slice or the last slice or whatever, you have to make sure that that bite's going to make you stand out, but it's not going to taste like something other than what it's supposed to be. And so over these years, you know, we, we've kind of, we figured that out. We've understood between that first day that I cooked to my latest experiences, I've been lucky enough to be involved with some of the biggest cooks in the world as far as events and individuals. So I've cooked at every major there is from World Food Championships to the Jack to American Royal, Memphis and May, you know, all these world champion places. I've been able to either cook on my own as a team or cooking with a good friend of mine. Sorry. Cooking with a good friend of mine who who is a sorry about that. That's is, okay. It might be Myron Mixon or someone. Why don't you pick <laughs> well, it up and, uh, it and, was, and invite them on? <laughs> it was actually Isao Ramos, who is probably one of the best Tex-Mex barbecue uh, restaurants in in Texas right now. Uh, go. I'm going to say he's number two. And uh, we, we've had some other conversations going on because we're actually going to do a big Tex-Mex 
uh, barbecue festival in November in Texas. It'll be the first one ever. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, technically, you know, I've had a lot of great opportunities brought to me through barbecue. In this journey that I had on on conquering and figuring out how to cook barbecue and how to be a competitor and how to be a winner, you know, type of deal. The good thing is I learned how to lose very, very gracefully. I had a lot of practice. You know, when I started to win, I remember being that guy who never got a call or, you know, never, you know, never got out of my seat, you know, at a contest or anything like that. So it, it always made me feel for all these teams, you know, you, once you start going to these things, you see a lot of the same people everywhere you go. And then you notice these new guys that come in and then you try to make it, you know, you, you try to put yourself in them in their shoes. And I always have been someone who's always been very helpful. And if you see somebody not doing a proper thing, you know, trying to help them out or, you know, something like that. And that kind of is what led me into a business in barbecue. So again, I've always been in sales and marketing. So I've, I have been in oil field sales and animal health sales. I've been in, um, I've actually worked in a company that we did environmental systems for feed yards. I've always had my hand in something where it's always been very customer oriented. As I started getting better into the barbecue game in the competition world, started winning. I found out that there were certain brands and certain products that helped me achieve my goals. One of those products was actually B&B Charcoal. And they happened to be a company which was uh, very local to me. They were actually like 40 minutes from my house. At the time, I knew the product. It wasn't it wasn't available everywhere, you know, but it was available to me. I just couldn't understand why the company wasn't bigger, why they weren't selling more and, you know, all this other stuff. So, I pursued a relationship with the company. I used the product. All I wanted was, I just wanted a, a, a permission from the company to be able to promote their brand. I didn't want product. I didn't want anything. You know, we. I just wanted a sticker from the company and a recognition from the company to say, yes, that guy uses our product and we say it's okay. And so when I started doing that and started pursuing the owner of this company, we started, we got into a friendship he understood kind of what we were doing and how we were out there promoting the product every weekend. And the deal is with the company is they were not involved in the barbecue industry. They, they made charcoal, they made wood products, but they weren't, they didn't cook every weekend. They didn't really understand the ins and outs and, and why their product was so much better than a, a, this other product or what people really loved about that thing. But I did, I understood it. And so we had more and more conversations and it finally led to them reaching out to me going, Hey, you know, we have these trade shows. Would you be interested in going and doing these trade shows for us? And again, I was an unemployed or not a, I was an unpaid employee of the company who basically was, it was an in-kind thing. I would go and do these trade shows for them. They would keep me in product. I would, you know, I'd have caps and all kinds of good stuff that I can hand out at these contests so all of a sudden, that's how our relationship kind of evolved. And then at the time, there was a uh, there was another company that was based out of Texas that was called Western Wood Products. And uh, Western Wood Products was probably the number one dominating brand in charcoal, in hardwoods like stick wood and 
chunks and chips and stuff like that. They were in Walmart, you know, they were in, they were in the big stores. When that company, it, which was, it was a smaller company. It was, it was uh, privately held. I knew the, the family and uh, I heard that that company was going to be selling out to a, a big, big store. Actually, it was going to sell out to Duraflame. And uh, when I heard that, and it was just kind of like that, just barbecue talk at events, you know, people were like, oh yeah, I hear those guys are going to be selling out. And that company, Western Woods, did such a great job in the barbecue competition community because they would actually go out and they would throw like parties at, you know, bigger cook-offs and they would make sure that people got their products and, you know, all that type of stuff. And when I saw what was happening and the transition that was fixing to to transpire with this other company buying them out and they were going to lose that small town feel, you know, the people who, who grew the company were going away. And then you were going to have some big corporate company coming in. I said, it's not going to be the same anymore. When that happened, um, I spoke to the owner of, of B&B and I said, hey, you know what? Have you thought about expanding, you know, growing this company into, you know, I, I said, I, I don't know what the plans are for this. I've never, that was the one question I never asked is, you know, where, where do you want to be in five years? As we had those conversations, I said, look, I said, I think there's an opportunity coming up with this Western Woods selling out. I think that they're going to leave a lot of people unhappy because all of a sudden, all this attention they had is going to be going away. And so the first thing that's going to happen is their customer base is just going to kind of walk away and look for someone else. At the time, the owner of the company of B&B was, he was a, he was impressed that I kind of saw that coming. And he already, of course, knew that that company was selling out. It's a very small circle in the barbecue industry. So he basically asked me, he goes, what do you think the opportunities there are? And I said, honestly, I said, I think you could probably double or triple your sales within a year. So with that being said, I kind of jumped in and just told him, look, this is this is what I'm willing to do for the company. This is what I need, you know, and they never had anyone in a position as far as a marketing director or sales director or anything like that to really increase sales. They always depended on brokers. So they were just a manufacturer and they had a bunch of brokers who would go in with a catalog full of stuff and go sell stuff. So they were never really involved in that aspect of it. Once they brought me on and we just kind of gentleman's handshake, which was not the smartest thing to do, but that's <laughs> what I did. You know, I'm from, I'm, I'm from small Texas town. So we just kind of shook on it and we said, yeah, I said, I'm going to make you money and I'm going to grow your business. About six years later, it, it, that's exactly what happened, you know, and, and we saw every year we saw incremental growth in that company. And we went from being in every little little corner store you know, in every small town to being on the shelves of Academy and Ace Hardwares and Walmarts and Lowe's and, you know, and everything else. But we did such a great job building the brand that happened to have a great product attached to it that all of a sudden, you know, you would see that brand everywhere. And I got involved with so many different organizations in barbecue industry, because again, I saw what importance it was to be, you know, associated to a, an organization that was about what you love to do, which was IBCA. And then shortly after I got involved with B&B, I started, I got introduced to, I just made a, a whole list, like a laundry list of 
I want to go here and here and here and here. All these dream bucket list places to go cook. All these big contests. I want to get involved with, you know, KCBS, which is the Kansas City Barbecue Association. Mm -hmm. Uh, NBN, you know, the Memphis Barbecue Association. So I just just made this dream list and said, look, this is, I'm going to go to all these places this year. And they're like, okay. And I didn't, I had my own truck. I had my own trailer. I had, you know, I had all this other stuff. So basically I just said, look, I'm, this is where I'm going to go and I'm going to take product everywhere I go and I'm going to hand it out and I'm going to let people experience it. And we're going to go from there. I went and I joined all these organizations, NBBQA, which is the National Barbecue Association, uh, again, KCBS, you name it, I signed up for it. Trade shows, we went to go try to do every trade show we could. In a very, very short time, like within a year or so, we were able to grow quite a bit in the uh, in that market. But one of the things that I didn't tell you was, I, I told you I had twins. My family's very involved in, in, in what we did. You know, it was a family affair regardless. So I have a, a daughter and I have a son. My son happened to be one of the guys who was toted around with me all the time. And he was a young man, probably about when he was 11 years old, I got him started to cook. In a very short period of time with him is because I spent all this time making all these mistakes on trying to understand how to cook that I was able to really streamline it for him and give him the basics of and we put them on a pellet cooker, which you you didn't have to manage fire. You just set it and you just cooked. And we wrote up some recipes for him and we got him to understand that everything was just time. You did all your seasoning and processes and everything else. The pit ran at one temperature. Everything went on at different times. And then you just pulled stuff off at different times and it would be done. Before you knew it, he, he was cooking contests all by himself. He was winning. He was, you know, 11 years old and beating cooks that were 45 years old. People weren't real, real happy with that. But, you know, he did really well. And, of course, you know, we kind of knew almost everybody in the, in, the, in the game, so it wasn't that big of a deal. So he would cook. I would cook. You know, sometimes I wouldn't cook. Only he would cook. His actions did not go unnoticed. So we actually had a Yoder smoker, uh, which was our pellet cooker that we cooked for, uh, that he cooked on. And uh, before you knew it, we actually got recognized from Yoder smokers who, you know, we just bought it. We were just a retail customer. We bought it and we used it. And before you knew it, you know, they started paying attention to our social media because even at the time, I mean, I've been doing social media since MySpace. So we've always been very active in telling people what we're doing and promoting brands. So during that time, of course, I'm a proud dad. You know, I got a kid who's killing everybody. So, you know, I would promote him all the time and we would hashtag and we would make sure that brands saw what we were doing. So before you knew it, Ty, actually, my son, Ty, had an opportunity to do some Food Network stuff. He was on first season of Kids Barbecue Championships, and that was like at 12. Didn't win it, but he had a great time. He understood really quickly that he probably didn't want to do a lot of barbecue TV. He understood that it was it was TV and not not on your merits of what you can actually do. So in a very short time, I, he just wanted to cook and he loved to win. He was very competitive. So anyway, he did really well for a long time. 
in the process of us growing these brands. And he was one of my brand ambassadors. I had a lot of great brand ambassadors during my time with B&B. You know, Ty was one of my brand ambassadors. He had a he had a lot of airtime. He was on TV. He was he worked with a lot of different brands. He was kind of uh, he he just worked with a bunch of people. So at the time, I had this really crazy stable of brand ambassadors, which I really didn't pay. I guess if you want to look at it, it was it was in kind relationships. They loved my product. It was a great. It was a legit product. So we would make sure they had that product in order to promote for us. So I mean, I've worked with guys like Mo Kason with. Malcolm Reed with Darren Cosmo with, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I've had the pleasure of working with some of the best guys in the, in the business and and those relationships still are, they still exist today. Some of the guys were still hanging out with B&B and some of them are not, they moved on Royal Oak, you know, some other guys, but kind of one of the things that has happened during this whole time is I understood very, very much how much the value of building brands, building great products, and building relationships were. And probably building relationships is probably one of the strongest things, you know, out there. If you have a good reputation in the industry, you can pretty much do anything you want. And you have the opportunity to have conversations with a lot of people who most people can't have. And so during this time that I was working with B&B, a lot of these guys that I've met in the industry, because I was always pitching, you know, trying to make product for people and uh, doing private label stuff and any opportunity I could, I met a guy named Tim Shear. And Tim Shear happens to be the owner of Blues Hog and uh, Gateway Brands. At the time, you know, Tim and I cooked, kicked around some ideas because he always made a really nice lump charcoal out of Missouri. And, you know, everything that I had, all my charcoal was all out of Mexico. The only products that B&B produce, they make wood. They, they basically process wood at their yard in Texas. Every other product they have, they, they buy from someone else and they just put their name on it. But at the time, like I said, is you know we had a lot of great connections, so we could always do a private label for someone if we had to. And uh, one of the guys I was chasing was Tim Shear. We talked about doing stuff over a couple of years, but nothing ever, ever transpired. So when we finally, B&B and I had finally split, I had some opportunities. I made a big old post, you know, on Facebook, you know, it was the last day of Memphis in May when, when we had that decision that, that B&B and I had split. I made a big post because everyone knew me as B&B. Half the people thought I owned B&B, you know, and I never told people I did. And I never told people I didn't just kind of in that scenario. When I was going to leave B&B, on that last day of Memphis and May's, you know, when it happened that next day, that Sunday, we were staring in our Airbnb. I had my son with me, Ty, and we talked a little bit and I was like, man, I said, I, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know if I'm staying in barbecue. I don't know what's going to happen. And it was kind of that deal. I had an inkling. The company was moving in a different direction. I was all about quality and putting out a great product and do what you say. I'm, I'm one of those guys if I tell you I'm going to do something, that's what's going to happen type of thing. And if I can't make it happen, well, then I'll be the first one to apologize. There was a lot of things happening behind the scenes that I could kind of tell that the company was going away from being quality first and going to quantity. When that happens in a smaller company like this, 
I saw the same thing happening that was going to be happening, you know, that happened to Western Wood. A bigger entity comes in, buys you out, and then all of a sudden everything changes from the quality of the product to the the value of customers. We built our customers on a lot of small guys, mom and pop shops. And usually whenever big box stores come in, all the mom and pop shops go to the bottom of the list. The focus is just doing on truckloads of stuff and not focusing on handling these smaller guys. So anyway, so that was kind of one of my things is as I stepped away and I made this long, I don't know, it probably took people 10 minutes to read what I put on Facebook. But I thanked everybody for time and the, you know, the, them putting their faith in, in me and in the product and the relationships that we built. And, and I just literally told everybody, I don't know what I'm going to do, but we're going to see you down the road soon, later, whatever. And by the time that I left Memphis and got home, I actually had, I, I probably had like 15 different people who had approached me and sent me emails and stuff like that about coming and joining companies. And uh, everybody from Rural Oak to my, I talked to uh, Sebastian with Fogo Charcoal, a couple of other independent companies. And I just knew one thing. I didn't want to work for a corporate company. I didn't want to work for a big company. I wear shorts every single day. That is that is what I wear. I don't do corporate stuff. I don't put suits on. Used to a long time ago, but I don't anymore. So that was kind of one of my deals is I just wanted a, a casual relationship with people. I'm kind of like the guy who strikes up conversations. And I, I, I figure out really quickly, can we do business together? Or are we going to be friends? One of the two. And you can we can do both. But there's a lot of times that in trying to build something, especially in smaller companies, we figure out, we cut our losses really, really early. So we try to figure out, hey, look, I, I really like you, but we can't do business because it's neither one of us can make money in trying to do something. As I had a lot of conversations, you know, one of the conversations was with Tim. And at the time, it, it just, we weren't in a place where we, he couldn't take me at the time and he wasn't ready for what we what we potentially could do. Sebastian with uh, Fogo Charcoal um, had reached out and he was out of Miami and he reached out and said, Hey, I'd love to, to meet, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Let me tell you about my company. And so when I, I actually flew down to Miami to go see uh, Sebastian. And so I finally get to, you know, his office or whatever. And I walk in and, and there's this guy and it's just, it's just a warehouse, you know, it's nothing fancy. And, you know, there's a guy painting a wall in, in this office building. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I said, I'm looking for Sebastian. And that was Sebastian. He was, he was the guy painting the wall. And right off the bat, I said, oh, you know what? This is a guy that I can work with because I'm that type of guy. It's I'm never going to ask anyone to do anything that I wouldn't do. And I'm always the one. I, I've got to stay busy. So I can't, I'm, I don't know. It's one of my one of my issues, I guess, is is I always have to stay busy. It doesn't matter what it is, picking up trash, you know, whatever. It's just like, it's, it's in my nature, I guess. So Sebastian and I really hit it off really well. He explained to me kind of what his situation was and what they were trying to do. And I agreed to join Sebastian to help put his brand out there, you know, build his brand. He already had a great brand. He was like number one sales on Amazon selling charcoal. Yeah. Fogo, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah, anybody yeah. who could sell charcoal on Amazon and have like no negative 
response at all. Yeah, it's I mean, that's be a, very, very good. That's amazing. Call, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's got a great product. Yeah. It was very easy for me to say, yeah, I said, I'll jump on board with you. I said, I, I don't know if this is going to last forever. I said, but let's get started and, you know, we'll see where we go. And, and sure enough, I spent about six months with Sebastian. We had a great time. We put the company in a great direction. And then about that time, I had a conversation with Tim. And at that time, Tim was ready to go. We had a lot of great things kind of that were already kind of in, um, in limbo, if you would. So we had a lot of good projects that we could move on like right away. We agreed to, you know, check it out. I told Sebastian, hey, look, it's been great. It's not you, it's me. And we just kind of, uh, we we split it. And, uh, but he was, Sebastian's a very, very, very understanding guy. And he understands business extremely well. Still, I mean, we still talk all the time. I talked to him earlier this week. So no hard feelings. We split joined up with Blues Hog. And, you know, one of my biggest things was, is because of my charcoal background, that was my focus was I wanted to put out a briquette and I wanted to put out an extruded product, which I had both of those products previously. And they were, you know, the number one sellers. When, when I had actually started with B&B, they had a flagship product, which was their lump charcoal. And that was, and they said, that is it. That's our number one seller. That's it. And when I looked at it, because I, I kind of know the industry, is there's still a lot of people who don't understand lump charcoal. And it's been around a long, long time. People still go and pick up a, a red and blue and white bag that their grandfathers picked up and their great-grandfathers picked up. And they've been cooking on for years and years and years. And it's a briquette. The briquette is the number one seller. I don't care. You can tell that to anyone. And that was always my focus is, is trying to make that product the number one product. And eventually it did. It became the number one product for B&B. And so when I left and joined up with, with Tim, that was one of our deals. I was like, dude, we, we have to put out a briquette. And Tim, you have to understand because he's got gateway drum smokers. Lump charcoal is the key product for that drum smoker. And they preached that for years and years and years. So to be able to come out with a new product that was going to be branded Blues Hog, that everyone who knows who Blues Hog and Gateway is, they automatically put those two things together. So for some of those people, a briquette didn't make sense because they cook on drums. And But the thing is, that's great. Majority of the people who have a drum, are, com- are they're competitive guys. They're comp guys. We're missing a whole market which is just guys who own a Weber or a char griller or a whatever, or an Aussie grill, whatever, whatever it's going to be. I'm so sorry. That's Myron Mixon. No, that was (laughs) Richard Anzel Dua, who is a promoter out of, uh, out of uh, San Marcos, Texas. And he puts on a lot of great events. I I know Myron Mixon is calling him sometime, Jeff. I, I um, I, you know, I actually, I talked to David and Michael more than I talked to Myron, but Myron, I do. I, I respect Myron tremendously. He's a good guy. Go ahead, Joey. I want to, I want to just, I want to talk about blues hog, but yeah. before we do, I, Jeff, this is, this is bad form. I, I shouldn't really lace into a guest. I mean, Joey makes this appearance on our show. He's such a nice guy, but he has behind him brisket King. Yep. So, I know that somehow, and I believe that he he cooked here in New York, yes. brisket king. Now, yes. here's where I'm going to 
tear apart the guest, and this is all tongue in cheek, of course. It's all good. Okay, but as a fan of barbecue, mm-hmm. okay, now we we all know the common sauces, you know, the the ones you get in the supermarket, Correct. okay, and we all have our our favorites or the ones that you know everybody seems to like, right? And then, of course. I, I don't want to insult anyone. We do have some, some you know, like a Ray Sheehan who mm-hmm. has his company, right? And he has wonderful sauces. But for years, for a very long time, I had heard about Blue's Hog Barbecue Sauce. Yep. And I had wanted to try, because I heard, this is what competition cooks are using. Mm-hmm. This is great. Different flavors, blah, 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 right? And yes, you could buy it on Amazon. I got mm-hmm. that. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to go into a grocery store and buy it off a shelf. And yep. Joey, we are in New York. Yep. Now I got Ace Hardware. You can get it. Mm-hmm. But I want to go into my local supermarket and mm-hmm. I want to be able to get it off the shelf. Why can't I do that? And when can I do that? Please. I'll tell you this. So we're working on it. We're getting closer. All right. Um, we actually, uh, just this year, we actually went into giant food stores, which aren't quite up in New York, but we got up into the D.C. area, and it's expanding. So we are having some conversations right now to expand this into, because really and truly, once you get 40 minutes away from you, there actually is in grocery stores and we actually do have it in, in giant foods and, and we have it in, there's a lot of Walmarts and a lot of the smaller grocery stores. The problem that we have with this product is not every store will treat this product the same way. So for us in Texas, if we go, if I would take you into our HEB, which that's our local grocery store, Mm -hmm. we literally have half a section that is nothing but barbecue sauce. And they have one particular section that's only going to be barbecue sauces that are made in Texas. I would dare to estimate that there's probably at least 200 plus different brands and bottles wow. on those shelves. It's like a toy and store. So, uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, but of course I'm, I also have to pinch myself every time that I go in my grocery store. Cause I, I when I'm home, I go to my grocery store like every day. I'm not a guy that, you know, just buys a bunch of groceries and puts it away. I literally go to the grocery store and buy stuff every day to make a meal when I'm at home. And I go in and it's, it's you know, we go in and it's like, oh, I don't want a Wagyu. I don't want this. I want, you know, I want that. You know, we've got so many choices. And then we go up to some of your areas up there and it's just like they're non-existent. You don't have a choice. And we, I, I got tickled because I was in uh, Jersey not too long ago when, when we did Brisket King. And so we were uh, in Tenek, Jersey, right there. Is that what it is, Tenek? Is it uh, T-Nac? T-Nac. 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 Right. So there was, a, uh, there was an Italian grocery, and I don't even know which one it is, but it was like the most amazing grocery store I've ever been into. Had, a, had an incredible meat counter. But they had like every meal, Italian meal that you can possibly think of already prepaid. All you had to do is go home and warm it up. And I would I would trade like half of my HEB for that store because, I mean, it was just it's just like we don't have stuff like that back home. Mm-hmm. But anyways, long story short is we are trying to get more into big box retail. Now, again, when I get back to the conversation about 
having remembering where we came from and trying to deal with our mom and pop shops, we have certain products that we offer big box stores. We don't offer our full entire line to big box stores because for the one main reason is I don't want my product on every corner and I don't want my product on every at every gas station because that's what doesn't make it special anymore. If you have to look for it a little bit, that's makes it special. Any of this crazy stuff that we've gone through over this last year and a half has taught us is the brands that we like, we like. And when you can't get that specific brand of milk, cheese, butter, whatever, you will go to any extremity it takes to get it. Because, you know, you bring that one home and they go, oh, that's not the same. And that's kind of how our products are. Our products are a premium product. It's it's almost a small batch, if you would, the way that we create our products from our sauces to our seasonings. And we actually have expanded now. We've actually got a fully cooked food line now. So we've got briskets and ribs and, and really? you name it, we've got it. And it's available on our website. We'll ship it straight to your house. But the main thing for us is we really want to create a great product and a, a great consistent product that people are happy with. For us, we have a sauce for every season. We have a sauce for every protein. The main thing is, is competitiveness is a very, very, very high caliber for us. Tim competes to this day. They're every major that that uh, is out there as far as like Memphis and May, Royal Jack, you name it. He's pretty much won them all. We just won shoulder at Memphis and May. We lost Memphis and May to James Cruz, who is out of, he's out of New Orleans, who I've actually got his cap on right here. And that's who I went to go cook with in New York for the Brisket King. James Cruz is actually with, now I got to see, now I have to, I have to look and see now. It's Central City Barbecue there in New Orleans. I'm a little preoccupied on that right now. James, a very, very good friend of mine. Unfortunately, he is being hospitalized right now. He's had some respiratory issues. And I'm everyone's wishing him the best right now. It just happened the last couple of days. But I actually did a lot of stuff with James Cruz this year. He's been a good friend of mine. He was, I've been messing with James Cruz since he like started cooking. So he's always been a very good friend of mine. So he had, he had asked me actually to go cook with him in New York for Brisket King. And there was always an event that I never could go to Brisket King. When I had the opportunity to go, I just said, yes, I wasn't even headed in that direction. I actually drove to New York. I wasn't even supposed to go there. I was supposed to go to Chicago. Then when we got this deal figured out, I wound up, I just said, look, you tell me when you're getting there, I'll be there. I'll bring everything we need. Let's make this happen. I actually went to New Orleans first to go get all the meat from him. And then I drove to Chicago and then I drove to New York to meet him, to be able to do this event. Anyways, we had a great time. I argued with James about taking more meat. And sure enough, we ran out of brisket. That's what got us a second place there, I think, is because we ran out of brisket. But it was such a great time. I, I love New York. I love Jersey as much as I love New York. But like I said, we, we've had a lot of opportunities this past year. We're expanding the brand tremendously. Ace Hardware is definitely one of our biggest relationships that we have in order to get this product coast to coast. The best thing about our relationship with Ace is if you don't have an a if you have an Ace in your local area, borough, wherever it is, 
and they don't happen to have the product, you can just order it online and they'll have it at the store in the next day or so, just depending on where their distribution is. So that relationship works out pretty well. Amazon exists. You can definitely order it from Amazon. You can order it direct from us if you want to. But one of the biggest things is, is regardless of, of where you get the product, it's the same product. We're not skipping any corners on anything. Uh, no one's getting a subpar product. The other thing is, is what we have found is the people who use our products are extremely helpful. So whenever we have a low product anywhere, they let us know. So, and that's great because I get texts and, and messages from people all the time. They go, hey, I went to go get this particular product and they don't have it. When are they going to get it back in? Well, I, I honestly, I don't have any control over that, but we try to find them an answer and we try to find a solution. You know, we know when people, and if this whole thing that we just went through this past year and a half has showed us is the bar, this was very, very good for the barbecue industry. I'm not going to let anybody lie to you about that. It was probably one of the biggest spikes in barbecue sales ever. I mean, you're talking like 400% numbers. And what we saw in this deal was because so many people had to cook at home if they didn't have an option. They, we had people who were just cooking vegetables or cooking whatever they could get their hands on. They were cooking at the house. During that time, I did the same thing. You know, I cook for neighbors and I cook for, you know, whatever. If people saw a pit lit up in my drive. I took, I actually took all my stuff out of my backyard and put it in my driveway because that was the way that we were, we we're socializing with everyone, everyone mm-hmm. walking through the neighborhood and whatever. And people got to a point during the whole, the whole deal was I actually would cook like every weekend and people would just come by and get food to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was great. I, I enjoyed it. We had fun. I created so much content during that time for social media And, you know, it just gave us an opportunity to just film something every day and just keep putting out fresh content. So anyways, but like I said, is, is I, I honestly enjoy what I do as far as the travel, the people, the cooking, I I don't see any downside in what I do. Actually, my family gets to come with me sometimes, you know, I see my, everyone in my household's very busy. Uh, My nerve, my wife is actually a, uh, she's an RN for a hospice program. My daughter's in college. My my son's got a real job. We see each other every couple of days. I spend a lot of time in the hotel during the year. So when I see everybody two, three times a month, that's a lot. I see other people way more than I see my own family sometimes when the busy time is. But other than that, I mean, we just have a good time. And we want to thank Joey Machado. And I'm sure Len would say if he was here, he really enjoyed that as well. And I'm going to take us on with Baseball Always Brings You Home by the musician and the poet Dave Dresser and Shel Krakowski. Speak to you on our next episode.